This is Leader ReadyCast, a monthly podcast featuring real-world lessons, best practices, and action-oriented insights for the Eurit moments when you're called upon to lead. Leader ReadyCast is the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. The immediate response to disasters gets a lot of attention. It's dramatic. It makes for good television and viral social media. But the long, hard slog of recovery gets much, much less attention. Yet recovery is the ultimate proof point for the individual, family, community, and even national resilience. Anyone who's followed my work knows that I believe that the scale, severity, and frequency of adverse events we now face has created a situation we simply can't respond our way out of. There aren't enough people, equipment, or funds to do it. We have to pay as much attention to preparedness, mitigation, and today's topic, recovery, if we're going to meet that challenge. My guest today is Dr. Samantha Montano. She's the author of Disasterology, Dispatches from the Front Lines of the Climate Crisis. It's an absolute must-read for anyone in disaster, emergency management, and related fields. In fact, if you're just anyone who's affected by a disaster, you should read this book. It's really terrific. She's also an assistant professor of emergency management at the Massachusetts Maritime Academy. She recently wrote a terrific piece for the New York Times that prompted today's podcast episode. It was called America's Disaster Recovery System is a Disaster. Samantha, welcome to Leader ReadyCast. Thanks for having me. It's really great to have you here. Thank you. So to, to really center our listeners so they know where you're coming from, can you give us a snapshot of your experience and your current work in emergency management? Yeah, sure. So I got started doing disaster work uh, down in New Orleans after Katrina and the levee failure. I went down there to volunteer and then ended up uh, moving down there for several years to work on the recovery. Um, And so I really got started in the field uh, working with the nonprofit sector on recovery specifically. While I was doing that work in New Orleans, the BP oil disaster happened and I had my first kind of taste of response and doing some community organizing work uh, down along the Louisiana coast and then started to do the thing that people in our field tend to do, which is kind of disaster hop around uh, the country and help with those recoveries as they were unfolding. And so through the the process of doing that, I started to see all of the commonalities between these disasters that on their surface looked very different from one another and started kind of thinking about how we were approaching disasters in a more kind of systemic way rather than in this kind of case-by-case basis, which is what we often tend to do when we think about disasters. And so that led me down a path to going to graduate school, um, where I ended up getting my PhD in emergency management from North Dakota State University. And um, kind of from that point on, I have been very focused on uh, research and teaching and public engagement and really kind of talking a lot about um, what we know about the emergency management system, how it operates, what we need to change about how it operates, and the kinds of policy changes that we need to implement to be able to do that. Well, that's great. I know you're out there a lot, and I really appreciate that you're continually contributing to the conversation and, and being provocative and getting us to think more deeply about these issues. So let's go into the topic of your, of your article, which I really found fascinating. 
why do you call the nation's disaster recovery system a disaster? Yeah, I mean, I think the simplest answer is because it is not meeting the needs of disaster survivors across the country. Um, for that piece specifically, I talked to about a dozen different survivors from different disasters in the past several years all across the country. And every single one of them told me effectively the same story, right, in terms of, you know, this event happened, insurance didn't come through in the way that I thought it was going to. I didn't get any money from FEMA or I got, you know, a couple hundred dollars, a couple thousand dollars from FEMA. And I'm not personally wealthy. I can't get a loan. I don't know what else to do. And um, to me, that kind of says it all, right? That should not be happening to people who have gone through these disasters that are not, you know, in any way their fault, um, you know, and folks are just finding themselves really trapped in this system that they have very little control over, very little ability to get out of. And so to me, that signals that as a field, emergency management needs to really be at the forefront of changing how we are approaching recovery. Yeah, I know myself from having deployed down during Deepwater Horizon, as you mentioned, down in the Gulf and then in New York and New Jersey after Sandy, uh, the damage that people face to their property, uh, to their livelihoods is, can be absolutely devastating. And then they're faced with this system that is incredibly difficult to navigate. Um, and it's just so big and unwieldy. And I know people trying to do the right thing, uh, but it, it makes you the worst day of your life even worse when you can't begin to get some satisfaction and get some relief. So right. And I, I think, too, that that's something that people who aren't engaged in long term recovery might not really understand is that it's not just about rebuilding physical houses, but the process of recovery itself is leading to things like increased mental health impacts. We see the increase in suicide rates post-disaster. I mean, we're, you know, people are being hospitalized. They think they're having heart attacks because they're put under so much stress in large part because of the process that we are telling them they have to go through. Um, so it really, uh, again, kind of this is why like using that term disaster, I think is really appropriate, appropriate, right? We've reached this kind of crisis point in how we're doing this. So let's focus on how we might improve this. I think it's an area where you've done a lot of work. And, and I know that neither one of us has got a magic wand or a, a magic spell or, you know, it's a fairy dust we can sprinkle over this and make it better. So what are a couple of things you think we could do that are both practical and feasible without depending upon an act of Congress? Because I don't want to depend on Congress for anything, at least to get started. <laughs> so. sure. <laughs> sure. Well, the good news is, is that we don't need Congress to start making changes. Um, we do need them down the line, but we, we can start without them. I mean, it's a long list of things. I would start at FEMA. One of the things that I brought up in the New York Times piece was, you know, kind of relatively simple changes like extending the application deadlines for individual assistance. I heard from so many survivors from this piece and, and other projects that, um, you know, by the time they finish fighting with their insurance companies, the deadline for FEMA aid has already passed. And so they may have thought they were going to get insurance money, then they don't. So they hadn't applied. 
Um, you know, sometimes people don't even really realize how extensive their impacts are and, and how much need they're actually going to have until months and months after the disaster has happened, right? Um, as they start kind of taking apart their house and, and realizing how extensive the damage is. So um, things like extending application deadlines and, and also just more broadly how FEMA is interfacing with the public when it comes to individual assistance uh, in terms of, you know, making people uh, go through this appeals process multiple times um, and denying them for little things and not really fully explaining to people what the process is. That confusion and lack of clarity that exists around the individual as uh, the individual assistance program, that's not Congress's problem. That's something that FEMA is capable of fixing on their own. I think it's important to look outside of FEMA too. Um, if you look kind of down the line here at the state level, certainly there needs to be an expansion uh, within FEMA in terms of capacity and certainly same at the state level or at the local level. But I think the states here could be doing much more when it comes to recovery. There are a few states that have individual and household recovery programs that people may be eligible for, um, you know, when an event doesn't get a presidential disaster declaration or individual assistance isn't approved for their area. Um, but I think we could expand those state programs pretty significantly to try and uh, help catch the folks that are falling through the cracks of relying on FEMA here. Um, and certainly that's something that I think state level emergency management directors need to be working with their governors and state legislatures on. Um, and then I'll round it out with the local level. Um, certainly across the country, there are, you know, especially in some areas, uh, many local emergency management agencies that are simply treading water right now. Um, and I get it, right? They have been overwhelmed by multiple disasters. They don't have the resources that they need to be doing all that uh, we would ideally want them to be doing. At the same time, we've got to find a way for our local communities to be doing recovery planning pre-disaster. When we look at the research, we know that pre-disaster recovery planning is one of the things that sets a community up for being able to more quickly move through that recovery process. Um, and I think in terms of the things we could be doing at a local level to ready whole communities for recovery, planning is probably the obvious starting point for emergency managers. Um, so I think, you know, something along the lines of finding support for local agencies and leading that recovery planning process could have a really huge impact. Yeah, that's great. That's really good advice. A lot there to pick apart. You know, I think that one thing that might be interesting would be uh, even FEMA or at a state level, uh, a state agency, to have a, a charrette or a series of charrettes where you ask the people who are likely to be affected by the disaster to contribute to designing the system. What would they like it to look like? What should it feel like? That might provide some really interesting insights into how this whole process can work. I think when you start with just that bureaucratic perspective, and again, I think folks at FEMA at the state and local level are trying to do the right thing. They've got a very cumbersome system to work work with. Um, and to, to bring different voices in would be a really interesting uh, way to, to begin to change this. Yeah, I mean, I think 
you know, we have a lot of good research on recovery, on the individual and household recovery process. And I, I think we have a pretty good grasp on what the problems are. But I definitely think looking to survivors um, and, and local government too, to help, uh, you know, help re-envision what that process could look like in a way that um, makes it easier for them uh, to be able to participate in would be a, a really great idea. Let's talk some more about bringing the public into the conversation. Cause I know, you know, we give people some fairly generic preparedness advice, right? You know, buy the tuna fish, buy the bottle of water, have 72 hours of food and water, for example. Uh, you have many people who, and we don't give them any advice in terms of, of recovery. I don't think anybody thinks about that till the bad thing has happened. Um, and even with the preparedness advice, many people who can do it, don't do it. Uh, and that ignores some of the equity issues you, you've raised in your piece. And for a lot of people, three days of extra food is a luxury, never mind a generator or other supplies we'd like them to have. So how can we be realistic about bringing the public into this discussion? I think that one of the issues you get at is this is constant disconnect between the expectations of the public and what happens and the response that occurs, be it federal, state, or local, how can we begin to align those expectations and also get people to their productive part of this conversation? Yeah, I mean, you know, going all the way back to civil defense, communicating with the public has been this core tenant of what emergency management is. And it's kind of interesting to reflect from where we are now to say, have we done an effective job of that? <laughs> and I think that maybe in some ways we have um, on, on certain issues. Um, but I think there are many more issues that we haven't really been effective. And I think part of this comes down to, you know, at this point, I think we can say putting out these 30 second ads where we tell people very one directionally to go buy all this stuff to have in their house isn't effective. Um, and so I think we really need to be rethinking that. Um, I think that taking this really one directional approach and having kind of emergency management talk at the public is not working in our favor. Um, I think kind of how we communicate now is much more collaborative and requires this back and forth kind of as this byproduct of social media. And I think we need to be integrating those principles into how emergency management is interfacing with the public. Um, and, you know, I think there is probably a lot of different ways to do this, um, but I think it would get at that core kind of problem of this mismatch in expectations. Um, I mean, just broadly educating the public on you know, the existence of emergency management, I would say it would be a good starting point, um, let alone like what is emergency management actually doing um, as kind of a next step. Um, you know, there's actually, I've been a part of a couple of conversations in the field recently talking about the need to see emergency management represented in popular culture, right? If you think about how many TV shows and videos there are, movies there are about firefighters, we don't have anything like that for emergency management, right? And so I think the public is also just really unfamiliar with emergency management. So then to have 
you know, a FEMA administrator go on TV and say, well, you need to have a savings account for when a disaster happens. You know, it, it, what? <laughs> no one's going to be listening to what you're saying, right? And that's a real problem for us in emergency management because we actually really need the public to listen to us, right, when a response is happening. So, yeah, I, I think we need really a just complete revisioning in how, and um, really what the relationship is between emergency management and the public. Okay, I, I see a, a, you know, a scripted drama in your future. Uh, <laughs> there are several <laughs> ideas out there, let me tell you. Uh, but you're right. We've done a lot with, with, with fire, police, and EMS in terms of, of people understanding what, what they do and why they do it. And you're right. Emergency management does remain a mystery for a lot of people. And, uh, and that's a really interesting way to try and, to try and fix it. Yeah, I mean, if you, um, you know, look back at, uh, Hollywood disaster movies, you really have to go back to 1997 and Tommy Lee Jones and Don Cheadle in Volcano to have, you know, a, a real representation of emergency management on screen and not to make anybody feel old, but 1997 was a long, long time no, ago. Long time now, ago. <laughs> so we, we need, uh, we need something new. Absolutely. And the pace of disasters is not like the change we're, we're heading into what i've seen called an uninsurable future uh, which is going to make the recovery process even more difficult and it's going to put more pressure on the government response system and we already know the federal uh, flood insurance program loses a whole lot of money they were trying to take over from the when the private sector would no longer insure those properties and you've noted the fema and it's no secret it's underfunded and short-staffed they've got a really even as big as they are they've got an even bigger job to do so do you think we need to fundamentally reframe how we think about preparedness and recovery? And if so, how? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's kind of two things. One, I think we need to build on the system that we do have. I do not think that our emergency management system is so broken that we need to throw the whole thing out and start again. I think that there are some good bones there that we just need to kind of move around and build off of. So in that sense, I think you know, dramatically increasing FEMA's budget and staff and seeing that happen at the state and local level is really important and could make a tremendous difference. Um, at the same time, we do need to be shifting our thinking, right? And we do need to be um, thinking about, you know, I'll, I'll use preparedness as an example here. We have taken this very individualistic approach to preparedness, going back to civil defense, where, you know, you are telling individuals that they're responsible for themselves, that they need to be stockpiling supplies, that they need to have their own plans. And it's not that those things are bad or are not helpful, but it is a little curious that we have taken such an individualistic approach when we know that response is actually something that we experience as a collective. You know, you are not normally going through a disaster on your own. You're going through that with the people around you, your family, your broader social network, your community. And so I think we've got kind of a mismatch going just in terms of how we're thinking about preparing for response, let alone, you know, before we get to recovery, uh, in terms of, you know, how we're thinking about our resources that we have and, and how to actually implement those in ways that actually make us better able to survive those events. So I think, um, so a, again, part of this is building on the system that we already have, but then also making changes to that approach to better reflect what we've learned from 
the past, you know, century of responding to disasters. Now, it's such an important point about the individual versus the community response. I know another old reference here, but a book I go back to again and again is A Paradise Built in Hell by uh, Rebecca mm -hmm. Solnit. Um, again, showing that we respond as community and we're actually pretty good at taking care of each other. Um, obviously, you need additional support in a major disaster, but we we do tend to come together. And I think that's, right. a, uh, you know, again, to the, the extent that our emergency managers can be catalysts in that process and be thinking that way uh, may help us prepare that way. And then <clears throat> when we get to recovery, uh, be thinking that way as well. Um, and I think that it's, uh, I'm not sure how realistic it is to be expecting a giant increase in the FEMA budget. We can all cross <laughs> our fingers. Um, You're not going to pull out the magic wand. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But I think that, um, you know, again, just in terms of, of thinking forward to recovery, those communities that have done some sort of future planning, not just for recovery from a disaster, but what do we want this community to look like a decade or two down the road? You know, how are we thinking about development and all the sort of day-to-day -day things we deal with? Because if you've got that in place, you've already envisioned the future. So if you have to recover, you've got the, at least the beginnings of a blueprint of what you want to do. And you hopefully you've had a lot of community input and people have bought into it. So you've got a, a, a head start on where you want to go. And then, of course, you have the challenge of, of getting the resources and all the rest uh, in, in place. Right. And I think, too, this is one place where um, I think maybe there's a reason to be a bit hopeful in that um, as the climate adaptation conversation grows, I think that there are some real um, kind of shifts in how the public is thinking about climate change and kind of the realization that climate change is here and happening and is going to directly affect them that could really possibly hopefully um, lead to more engagement from the public in doing some of that kind of visioning work right that you know we do in the, in the context of mitigation in emergency management but that uh, kind of bringing in and kind of bridging that gap between the emergency management community and the climate community could kind of lead to some of these broader conversations where we do see not only more mitigation happening, but also be able to kind of integrate in recovery planning to that as well. Is there a community you've seen that you think has done this particularly well, uh, one that we could look to for some insight and, and an example of things going as well as one could hope? My general answer to this is no. Um, unfortunately, I think there are some communities that have um, kind of done certain aspects of recovery better than others. Um, but I don't think that there is any community in the U.S. that has experienced a major disaster and really like done recovery in the most effective and efficient way possible. Um, I think that's something that, you know, is it's a, it's almost it's it's frustrating that that hasn't happened. But I think it uh, speaks to this reinventing the wheel that happens after every disaster when we get to recovery, because there is such a lack of education and understanding about what recovery is and what that process looks like that, you know, we're almost starting from scratch every time a disaster happens. So um, yeah, I hopefully in the future, we'll have a good example. Well, and there's a challenge to communities out there get to be the first who does this really, really well. We'll have you on the podcast. Samantha will come say hello 
it will be uh, it'll be something to celebrate if we finally get it right. Because I, I, like you, I talk to too many people who are, you know, they're six, eight. You know, look at look at New Orleans after Katrina. They're still decades into recovery and right. haven't finished the journey yet. And it is, uh, I think, we underappreciate how hard it is. And it would be great to begin to get a couple of case examples of people who thought about it ahead of time and they did the mitigation, they did the preparedness and actually were, uh, were, were ready to go uh, with recovery. So that's something we can hold for the future. Definitely. My, my final question, Samantha, for, I ask every guest, what gives you hope? You know, I would say that my students tend to be my source of hope day to day, um, teaching an undergrad emergency management program. Um, and I specifically teach the freshmen who are uh, usually have about 70 of them. And they come in every year ready to go, ready to learn about emergency management, ready to talk about climate change, what the future looks like. And I'm always very struck by the fact that they are walking into this field at 18 years old, which I think is earlier than probably most of us came to this field. And they're also walking into this field with a depth of knowledge that, again, I don't think any of us really were able to have coming into this field, right? They're not having to go wander around from disaster to disaster to realize there's all these problems with our system. They're coming in from the beginning, understanding, here's how this system operates, here are the problems with how this system is operating, and here are the solutions that we need to be able to address those problems and make this system work better in the future. And I think the field is going to be kind of going through a lot of changes as folks from, you know, these undergrad EM programs start going in into the profession and are able to kind of really jumpstart kind of where they're coming in from. Well, I'm with you there because I don't have undergraduate students. I get graduate students, but being with a group of young people every year uh, and seeing their energy and their optimism and their commitment, it always gives me hope as well. So, so thank you for that. And congratulations to all of your students who've chosen this field. I think it's a, it's a, not as well known as it should be, but it's a really worthy uh, career choice. It'll be quite rewarding in the years ahead. My guest for this episode has been Dr. Samantha Montano. She's author of Disasterology, Dispatches from the Front Lines of the Climate Crisis. She also teaches emergency management at the Mass Maritime Academy. Thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. And until next time, remember that you're it. Be ready to lead when it matters most. This has been another episode of Leader ReadyCast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts and find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to lead.